Hey guys, you're listening to episode 39 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're going to be sitting down with seasoned financial advisor Tim Mann. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we had the opportunity to sit down with Tim Mons, a seasoned financial planner who has had a financial finish line for the last 15 years. In addition to his advising career, Tim is heavily involved with the National Christian Foundation, a donor-advised fund platform, as well as Kingdom Advisors, which seeks to equip financial planners to integrate their faith into their work. Tim shared just an incredible testimony of learning to walk in step with God, but even more than that, He shared through his own story how God is so much more interested in us giving with God rather than giving for God. I know this one hit home for me on multiple fronts, and you won't want to miss it. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Well, check out our Facebook group where you can join the discussion and hear what others have experienced in their journeys. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. Well, here we are with Tim Mons. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Thanks for having me. So I thought it would make sense just to start from the beginning. I was hoping you could share a little bit of your own story and how you got to where you are today. Well, grew up in the Midwest, in uh, Naperville, Illinois, to be specific. And I grew up actually in a really solid church going home, I would say. Both my parents were teachers. And ever since I can remember, my parents took me to church and kind of a conservative, disciplined family with German and Bohemian roots. So my family was always pretty conservative in how they lived, very disciplined in how they did everything, including church life and life in the neighborhood and whatever. So Kind of in the context of what we're talking about here, financial finish lines and things like that, pretty much modeled for me, I would say, discipline around money and discipline around spirituality was a pretty much a regular part of my life. And like I said, I grew up in a Lutheran church, so like all the time we were like doing the right things. And I remember I had been, this is in eighth grade, I had been confirmed through kind of what the Lutheran church's process is and whatnot. I was actually on a high school football team. This is my freshman year, and I was really cranky. It was two-a-day sessions, and I was, you know, I was just tired and like kind of at the end of my rope. And one of the guys who had been on my football team ever since I was probably like in sixth grade through Pop Warner football was a guy by the name of Todd Harper. He had befriended me, and we'd been kind of palling around together. And I'd always stayed a little bit kind of arm's distance from him because he was kind of known to be kind of on the God squad. And I wasn't sure if that was good for my brand in terms of, you know, kind of hanging in school. And I wanted to be a cool kid and whatever. And But I just distinctly remember after one of these two-day sessions, I was all cranky. And his locker was next to mine in, in the locker room, and I'm taking off my pads and stuff like that. I was grousing about something. He said, you know, Tim, he said, I wonder if your life wouldn't be better if you had Jesus in it. (laughs) I was so offended. (laughs) I was like, dude, I've been going to church my whole life. What are you talking about? Through a series of conversations and him bringing me to his high school youth group and then seeing these series of really bad movies from the 70s about the book of Revelation. Like one of them was like A Thief in the Night. Another one was called Distant Thunder. And it was like kind of like the scared straight version of come to Jesus or turn and burn kind of thing. But I do remember going to a youth group in his basement. And after seeing that movie, you know, I had all of this kind of religious and church background. I remember praying to receive Jesus probably like 20 times that week because I was like, man, I don't want to get left behind. I know that. And it's really kind of where my spiritual journey started out. And it's actually where... I, unbeknownst to me, probably 20 years later, it would reconnect with my friend Todd, 
so Todd was the guy who ended up leading me to Christ when I was 14 years old. And then fast forward until I was 39 years old and in this midlife crisis and God used Todd again to create kind of this born again, born again experience. And it happened to be around money and generosity. So the bottom line is, is that is how I came to Christ and ended up spending a lot of time with my buddy Todd. We were purposely discipled by a couple of older men who really poured their lives into us, which made a significant difference, kind of brought us up in leadership in Youth for Christ, then off to college and then kind of on to career life. But really, I would say kind of the big, there was a couple of significant watershed moments. So one was that, and really, I think God had taken me to a place, kind of a crisis of sorts in my life to where I was open to a different perspective and seeing God differently in my life. Another significant kind of watershed moment like that was probably my junior year in college. And I remember I had been serving as kind of this dutiful Christian. And I was like the guy in my fraternity at Purdue that was, I had become kind of the God squad in, on my, in my fraternity and was really involved in Campus Crusade and had learned how to share my faith. And I'd done several mission trips and things like that. But even though I felt like I had been doing a lot of the right things, it didn't feel like I had an intimate relationship with God. And I remember having a very serious conversation with God. Like, if this is really all there is, which is I just, I'm the Christian Boy Scout and I got all the merit badges and I do all the right things. But really, it's kind of hollow inside of me. Then I think I'm going to try to live like my fraternity brothers because that looks kind of fun. And a very interesting thing happened to me probably within two weeks of that is God started really breaking me of spiritual pride, which I didn't realize was there, just showing me how I had, because I had dutifully done all of these right things and sort of checked all the boxes and, you know, served in ministry. And I had seen myself somehow as better than my fraternity brothers. I'd become arrogant when it came to spirituality. And I don't really know how exactly God showed me this, but it literally internally crushed me. And for like a week, <laughs> I walked around and I would go to class and stuff. I'd go back to my fraternity room and I would lay on my bed and I would just weep. And I think it's what people talk about when they talk about kind of like this place of brokenness. But again, it was another one of those times where it was kind of like this flashpoint and I had a really bizarre thing happen to me. <laughs> but I got to tell you that as a story because it was amazing to me. And I've had a few of these just unbelievable supernatural experiences happen in my life. And this was one of them. So it was my first week back to Purdue my senior year. So I just finished my summer vacation and all the guys were across town in West Lafayette at this fraternity initiation ceremony. And I had to come back to my fraternity house. So this was before the days of cell phones. I had to come back to my fraternity house and get a call from this girl at University of Kansas because I was the guy who was traveling all to universities all over the Midwest to promote mandate. 89, which so between the Urbana Missions Conferences, they have these, what they call these mandate conferences. And so I was part of the team that was promoting this. And so we'd go to different on-campus ministries all across the Midwest, and we would hold these things called concerts of prayer. And so I was setting one of these things up for University of Kansas. So I go back to my fraternity house. There's nobody there in the whole house. And I walk into my fraternity room, and it was clear as day that God was in the room. It was like I walked in and it was like, I mean, there was no like a cloud or there was nothing visible, but it was just I walked in the room. I was like, holy cow, this is what it must be like to meet with God. And it was the first time in my life when I ever prayed and actually in my spirit heard God's voice. It was like a two way dialogue. And I didn't know if I had, was just going nuts or what. So I'm sitting there. I never got the phone call that I was waiting for. But I was just laying up there on top of this. There was this deck and on top of a waterbed. And then my futon where I would sleep at night was up on there. And I was just laying there, just in conversation with God. 
And I start hearing the doors of the fraternity open and close. And my roommate walks in, who was also a believer. And there wasn't very many of us in the house, but he was a believer. And so he was taking off his suit and said, hey, how was your night? I said, it was good, interesting. And he sits down at his desk and he opens a book and he's starting to look at it and study. And he looks up at me and looks around the room. Got this real puzzled look on his face. Looks back down at his books, looks up and he goes, all right, dude. He said, this is going to sound weird. He said, but does it feel like God is in the room? I'm like, dude, he's been here for an hour. <laughs> and it was the first time where I had like this intense intimacy with God. And that continued on for literally months where I would walk around and I could just have this ongoing dialogue with the spirit of God. And it was so impactful to me that it made me decide that I really wanted to go into full-time ministry. So I was a business guy in college. And so that was my senior year. You know, that's kind of when you're making those decisions. And I kept going to all these interviews with our Arthur Anderson and Eli Lilly and all the people that would come on campus. But I was just like, I really think that God is calling me into full-time ministry. So that's what I did for three years. And then I hit this point where I was doing this internship, this pastoral internship. And it was really good, but it was really hard. And when it was coming to a close, I kind of had a choice to make. I was going to go either off to seminary or I was going to go back kind of into the business world. And I got invited into financial services by a guy who had been doing it for 50 years who offered to mentor me and then sell me his business after a three-year kind of on-ramp. And so I went into business. I mean, I prayed about it back and forth, and it was really interesting. And I went to my senior pastor, the guy who had been discipling me, and he said, Tim, I think it's exactly what you should do. He said, I really think that you're going to be a minister of finance. I was like, well, that sounds really cool. I'll be the minister of finance. <laughs> what was really interesting about that is that that's ended up being a pretty prophetic thing in my life. I'm not sure how much I really understand about prophecy. And, you know, I know that God prepares works in advance for us to do, but that was another kind of one of those moments. You know how we kind of have like these little guideposts in our life where you look back and you're like, ah, that was another one of those moments. So I went off into financial services, but really I felt like, and I think this happens to a lot of people, is that life got pretty compartmentalized. So I would have my church service life. I would have my relationship with God. And then I had my business life. And they were all in these kind of little silos. And I remember getting to the point. This is really where it gets to the point where. So I had built a financial services business with a partner and got to the place where, you know, I was probably making three times more than my dad had ever made. You know, I had learned to live conservatively, so I was consistently tithing. I would give, you know, a little bit more than the tithe. You know, I supported some crew, campus ministry people. So I was giving faithfully and I was serving faithfully. And at the time, I had been an elder in our church for like 10 years. Things were going really well. My marriage was good. The kids were in good shape. But I hit this weird midlife crisis point. I was like, is this really all there is? So this is 15 years ago now. I was kind of despondent. I was like, dang it, I'm checking all the boxes. If I had like my little merit badge sash, I'm checking, you know, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. Why does it feel like I'm eating paper? It's just tasteless. And I happened to be telling my friend, my old friend, Todd Harper, who had led me to Christ, in my kitchen one day what was going on. I turned it back on him and I said, you know, tell me, are you bored because he had gone after school he had gone into full-time ministry too and he was working with crew and he had gone and he was doing the ministry in russia and then came back and was raising funds for crew and then he had started this ministry called generous giving back in 2000 and literally for six years every single year he asked me and my wife rochelle to come to a generous giving conference and we're like no dude <laughs> we're good we're generous enough I don't want to go and be guilted into, uh, you know, some crazy type of life. But here it was. It was another kind of one of these crisis moments. He's just like, okay, so you get the whole financial services thing. You see what happens in people's lives as they get more and more money. 
whether they're really well-intentioned Christians or they're whoever, you know, why don't you come to work for me? I'm like, well, I know what you make. <laughs> I know what I make. <laughs> and that would be really hard to do. It would take significant change of life. But remember, I had felt like God had called me into full-time ministry, but I didn't really know how that squared up with what I was doing in financial services. I kind of kept those things kind of firewalled off. So I was just in that place where I was just kind of vulnerable enough and open to it. And he's just like, dude, I know you're just cheap. So just come to Generous Giving. I'll pay your way. And I want to see how it impacts you and your wife, Rochelle. I was like, okay, I'll do it. So we go out to this conference and, you know, they had big name speakers, you know, platform speakers that, you know, names that everybody would know. I think Rick Warren was speaking and Luis Palau and Ron Blue and, you know, people that everybody knows. And they were all good. No question about it. Randy Alcorn was really good. I had never really read any of his stuff before. But what really struck me was hearing the testimonies of people who had really tried generosity, tried to actually align their lives with how God said that we should align our lives with regards to money. And I remember one guy talking about getting to a place where he was reverse tithing. It was like, are you freaking kidding me? That's nuts. I mean, who would do that and why? But as these people spoke, as they were giving their testimonies, they had this sense of purpose and this sense of excitement and anticipation about the future. And I was like, that is so what I want. But I'm so far from that. And that weekend is actually when my wife and I decided that we were going to, and we had never heard about the concept that you guys are talking about on this podcast all the time, this idea of a financial finish line. And the reason that we thought we were original putting this thing in place, but literally we had this conversation in our hotel room and said, you know, how could we ever go to work for generous giving when I'm making this and Todd is making that? I don't even know how it could work. And we're not generous people. We have this, you know, what I call a profit sharing plan with God, which is, you know, I give him 10% and then, you know, a bonus in good years, but it's not really generous. I mean, it's viewed as generous in the general populace because like who gives away 10% of their income or more, but with what we were making and how we were living, it didn't feel generous and certainly not like intriguing, like the stories that I was hearing at this conference. And so, and we decided there that weekend that we were going to do a six month experiment and that we were going to live on what Todd was living on. And rather than do what I would normally do, which is just totally bank it all, because I'm, you know, I'm more of a saveaholic than I am a spendaholic. So I would just totally bank it, which really goes back to my German and Bohemian roots, because there's security there and there's a sense of significance or success with you know how big your pile is. And we're like, okay, we're not gonna do that. We're just gonna actually set it aside over and above our, you know, what we're doing normally with our tithe. And then I don't really know what to do next. <laughs> so we just decided to do that. And my wife's concern was she said, Yeah, okay, I know you well enough to know exactly what's gonna happen here. You're gonna all of a sudden get all excited, you're gonna be generous towards all kinds of people and organizations, and what's gonna happen is we're going to get the short end of the stick. So me and the kids are going to be like, hey, can we get new shoes? And they'll be like, no, we're going to support this cause in Africa. <laughs> you know. And so we put in place that weekend what I call our all-star wrestling clause, which is anybody can tap out at either time, either one of us. You know, This was a six-month experiment. Either one of us can tap out at, at any time, and we would honor each other. And we're going to kind of try to do this in lockstep with each other. But I was the one who was really kind of, I think, addicted to money for what it meant from a security standpoint and from a measurement of success standpoint. So it's really me with the problem. She was actually really, she was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Why, you know, why haven't we been doing this for a long time? I was like, I, I don't know. Because I'm a financial advisor. That's why I have a problem. So we go home and... I set the salary and I started keeping this spreadsheet, this Excel spreadsheet. And so one, I still keep this to the, this day, 15 years later. So one column is your income. The next column is your giving. The next column is taxes. And the next column is savings. 
And so it's a pretty simple spreadsheet, but I keep track of this whole thing. And I have this one column, my giving column, which, you know, was never really even a decision before because, you know, the giving was kind of set. We tied. We had these crew people that we were, you know, supporting. But now we've got this money kind of piling up in this account. And I'm like, I have no idea what to do with it. So I decided my clever plan was, and I had never done this before. I mean, I had, you know, like most people, I had a quiet time and stuff before, but I had been walking in the mornings. And when it was warm outside, I'd walk outside. It was cold outside in Chicago. I would go on this treadmill. And so I decided I was going to have treadmill time for 30 minutes every morning. And for 15 minutes, I was going to walk and read a book about giving just to learn because I had no idea. And I did. I did. I read really, really good books. And then for 15 minutes, I was just going to be quiet and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak and guide me. And the reading part was really good. The quiet time was like literally for weeks. I was like crickets. I was like, where is that God who showed up in my dorm room when I was in college? And was it was so crystal clear where he wanted me to be and what he wanted me to do and how he wanted, you know, it was just nothing. And then I had a really bizarre experience happen. And literally, this is like six weeks into my reading and then quiet experience. And I don't even know what I had been reading, but I put down the book and I'm walking down the treadmill. And this is the first time anything like this has ever happened to me. And it's only happened one other time since then. And I started having like this, my eyes are wide open, but I'm having like this spiritual daydream happen right in front of me. Some people might call it a vision. I still don't know what to call it, but it was like an intense spiritual experience. And I don't know how long it lasted, but the picture was, is I could see Abraham and Isaac. Now, of course, I don't know what Abraham really looks like because I wasn't there, but you know, what was, should have been Abraham's face kind of transposed over his face was the face of this guy who I had met for 20 minutes, three months before this in a Dairy Queen in Rockford. And he was introduced to me by a client of mine and he was a Nigerian. I don't know what he was like a pastor or whatever, but I had met him literally for 20 minutes and his accent was so thick that I literally, I would catch like every third word of what he was saying. And I was trying to like just contextualize it and try to figure out what he was saying. But I re- distinctly remember driving away from that meeting three months earlier, being like, what a random meeting. I didn't understand what any of that was. I never thought about him ever again. And now he shows up in this spiritual daydream and he's the face of Abraham. And he has his son on the altar and he's going to sacrifice his son. And of course, behind him, there's this, bramble like this thicket and in this thicket is a ram but it's not the ram that you would think of it's actually a blood red dodge ram minivan with the you know what the hood emblems look like you know where they have like the dodge ram head and the little curly Mm -hmm. and it's sitting at this weird angle stuck in a ditch and in the moment i see this thing i hear god say this to me he says I want you to tell this guy, I learned later because I circled back to my client and said, tell me that guy you reintroduced me to. So the guy's name was Pastor Felix, and I've been friends with him for 15 years now. I'm supposed to tell this guy that, A, he's being commended for his faith and obedience, which is never anything I would say. And the second thing is that what God had promised him would come to pass, which is also not something that I would, I mean, it's not, I didn't speak that way. But this is what I'm supposed to tell this guy. And then there's this minivan. And somehow I know in that moment that I'm supposed to buy this guy this minivan. And as quickly as this bizarre vision thing happens, boom, it's gone. Here I am. I'm still walking on the treadmill. I turn off the treadmill and I go upstairs to my wife and I'm like, honey, the weirdest thing just happened to me. And so I tell her what, you know, I just told you guys what happened. I said, what do you think I should do with that? And she's like, what do you mean? You've been down there on that treadmill for six weeks asking God what he wants you to do. You should buy the guy the minivan and tell him what God told you to tell him. I'm like, I don't even know where this guy lives. You know, whatever. She's like, well, you know, go back to the source and find this guy. So Patty was my client who had introduced me briefly to this guy. So I went from there. I went from working out, you know, got ready for the day, went to the office. 
got done with the day, and I was going to down kind of the main drag in Naperville from my office on the way to pick up my daughter at this after-school kids theater program. And as I'm driving down the main road, I'm driving past where the car dealerships are. And I happen to glance over at where the Toyota dealership is. And on, you know, those kind of the racks where they put like used cars, like up on a ramp kind of thing. I look over, I'm like, dang, that's the minivan. I'm like, but it's in a Toyota lot. So can't be, but it looked exactly like it, right? So I pulled into the little driveway thing and I jumped out of my car and I'm walking around looking at this thing. And sure enough, there's that same hood ornament, the exact same color I saw in my vision that morning. And of course, the salesman walks out and says, hey, can I help you out? I'm like, well, why do you have a Dodge minivan in the front of a Toyota dealership? And he's like, a guy literally just traded it in this morning on a Camry and we're going to sell it. Well, how much are you selling it for? And he's like, well, I don't know. So long story short, I ended up buying this van because I know this is the van I'm supposed to get. I mean, it's beautiful. And so I called my wife and said, hey, I'm at the car dealership. I'm buying this van. This is the van I saw in my vision in the morning. She's like, great. So she comes and picks me up. We take it, we put it in my garage. And I call up my client, Patty. I said, hey, Patty, that guy you introduced me to, and I met him in a Dairy Queen a few months ago. What's his name? She said, oh, Pastor Felix. I said, well, I had a really interesting thing happen to me this morning. I'll tell you the story when I see you sometime, but do you know how I can get a hold of him? So she gives me his phone number. And it was on Friday night, I call this guy. And I was like, hey, I got something for you. I don't know if you remember me or not. I made it three months ago with this Jerry Quigley. And he's like, ah, oh, he said something that I still didn't understand just because the accent was so thick. I said, but I have this thing and I want to bring it to you on Saturday morning. Are you going to be around? He said, yeah. He said, why don't you come out, come out this way. And then when you get to the Dairy Queen, call me and then I'll talk to you in my neighborhood. So we're driving out to Rockford, which is like an hour from my house. And we get to the Dairy Queen, we call him. And so he's kind of talking me into the neighborhood and I'm driving this, you know, Dodge minivan I'm talking on the phone and he's talking to me. He's walking down the sidewalk of his apartment complex. I'm driving up and he's literally sees me and he's yelling at the top of his voice, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. And I'm like, oh man, I just want to crawl under the dashboard. What have I gotten myself into? So I get out and I hand this guy the keys and I'm explaining to him that he's being commended for his faith and his obedience. And God wants him to know that Oh, I explained him the whole vision and he's Abraham and this is the ram and here's the ram hood ornament. You know, I explained the whole vision to him and I said, and God wants you to know that what he's promised you will come to pass. And he looks at me like a deer in the headlights, just like, I'm like, what? He's like, can you come into my apartment? I need to show you something. I'm like, Okay. So we go into this guy's apartment and there's nothing on the walls of his apartment except one picture. And this picture, it's like an eight and a half by 11 picture of like the sea of black faces against red dirt. You can tell it's somewhere in Africa. And there's a podium with like a preacher standing at it. But over the guy's face, Pastor Felix has a picture of his own face cut out of another picture taped over this guy's face at the podium. So now Pastor Felix's face is not just the face of Abraham. He's also the face of this guy on this podium. But the caption on this picture says, what I have promised will come to pass. I see this picture. It's like literally like the hair on the back of my neck stands up. I'm like, what is that? (laughs) He's like, I came to this country 17 years ago under the promise that God was going to train me to become a evangelist to my people, to my tribe in Nigeria and lead them to Christ. And I've never been back. He said, we've never had the funding. We've never had the connections. And he said, so what you just said is basically a confirmation of what God had told me 17 years ago. He said, frankly, I've been losing hope that this was ever going to happen. That story, that sequence of events so impacted my life that I was like, man, if I could 
set aside something as easy as money and then ask God what he wants me to do with it and then be a part of something that there's no way I could ever dream about being a part of, but for the spirit of God actually tying like these seemingly random pieces together. I'm like, that's what I want to sign up for. And so that experiment has literally turned into the last 15 years of our lives. And though what that time period did, that six months did, is it really kind of created clarity that I actually was already in full-time ministry, that God had given me the relationships he had given me as a financial advisor with my clients as a platform to speak into their lives not just to fund the kingdom, but really so they could be set free the way that this was setting me free. And I think kind of the big thing that happened to me is that just by doing that experiment, it broke something in me and started to create this freedom that I never had. Giving went from just kind of another box to check as a good Christian Boy Scout to an invitation to do something with my heavenly father. Now I'd screwed that up too. Like I do most things. Like I turned it into like, you know, I got to maximize my giving ROI and I got to be smart about it. And, you know, it's all about stewardship and God's like, dude, just lighten up and just be a kingdom guy. Just surrender your life to me. Right. Just get in the flow of what I'm doing. And yes, I am going to be able to use the resources that I'm giving you, whether those resources are financial whether those resources are a resource of time or influence, whether it's with clients or staff or whoever, you know, don't overthink this thing, which is what I have the tendency to do because I want to get it right. And so literally it's been 15 years walking that journey out. And I think that the giving piece of it has been way more about me and intimacy with God and breaking the power of greed and the, money as the security or the success metric and just leading me really back to what my heart's desire really is, which is to have a great relationship with my heavenly father. I mean, and there's so many different pieces to it that have even since that time that have been significant chunks where God just continues to show up. And it's interesting because I used to think that God needed me. I mean, you talk about arrogance. I used to think that God needed me to fund the kingdom or whatever. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm the same God who threw the stars into space and I need Tim Mons to help fund the kingdom. Like, I don't have that one under wraps my own. It's really been me learning to take myself a little less seriously and be like, all right, God, I just... I progressively want to be more and more and more surrendered and just go on this journey with you. So I feel so blessed to be invited into that journey. I've tried to invite so many other people with limited success, I would say, both that are clients and good friends of mine. I've been this massive evangelist with very little success. And it's maddening at times and it's lonely at times because it's so countercultural. But every once in a while, I'll listen to people either at a generous giving conference or overhear a conversation with you guys on a podcast with somebody. I'll be like, ah, there are still others out there that, you know, are being set free. Man, that was really an awesome testimony. And I mean, if your 15 years started off that way, with the minivan and the vision and all of that coming together in a way that only God could put together. I can't imagine what God has done with the 15 years that followed that. One of the things that you said, though, I really wanted to dig a little deeper into because I think it will probably really resonate with many like it did with me is when you were talking about once you stepped into that whole generosity journey, really diving into the kingdom ROI and you know, wanting to fund the kingdom. I think a lot of people resonate with that feeling. I know I do as well. And I think Cody would probably say the same, have, you know, had those kind of thoughts often. And then you were talking about 
taking a step back and getting into the flow into, you know, a daily step with God instead of, you know, like a bull charge forward on your own strength. I was wondering if you could just dig a little deeper into what that looks like, how that has kind of shaped and how God has shown you how to do that well. Well, I can tell you where I started and where I'm at today and kind of how it's morphed. So when I first got back from generous giving, literally my commitment to God for that first six months was everything that we're not living on, we're giving. So I had set up a whole separate account. This is before I ever had a donor advised fund or anything. It was just very simple and kept on a spreadsheet. And what I really struggled with, and I asked a bunch of people that I never felt like I got a really good answer, even from guys that were at the time, my mentors, like at the time, Ron Blue had kind of taken me under his wing and I got to spend two pretty intensive years hanging out with him in Atlanta. I would go every quarter with a small group of guys to Atlanta. This is right as Kingdom Advisors was just kind of resetting back in 07. And I struggled with it. And like I said, I never got a good answer, but it's where I'm a major student and fan of the Gospels and listening to and watching Jesus and his interactions with people. And he said something that was really disturbing to me. And he said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I just kept asking other Christians, like really well-meaning Christians that were involved in the stewardship space and the generosity space, like, was Jesus just kidding around? Or did he say, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth? I was like, so what am I doing here? You know, one, I'm a huge enabler. This is actually what I do for a living for clients. <laughs> am I actually creating barriers for them to actually be able to follow Jesus? Because I've created, just like I had in my own life, the ability to be self-reliant. Because if I don't need God, because I've built my own little kingdom over here, chances are good with my own propensity for independence, my own sin nature to do stuff independent from God and say, no, thanks, God, I got this. So I went cold turkey and I literally saved nothing for three years. It was a really hard tension for me because here I am in my day job as a financial advisor, still helping people to save and invest systematically. And a lot of them with way overfunded goals, but also trying to not overlay this newfound value system and journey that I'm on, you know, but really kind of torn in that from a practical giving, saving, spending rhythm. And then on the giving side of things, I always have my financial advisor and my investment advisor hat on. And that's what I was talking about, like maximizing ROI. So I was like, well, where do I have leverage from an evangelistic standpoint? Where does it like create this giving, create the most evangelistic outputs and the most opportunities to win as many people to Christ. And in the way I've really thought about that now is that it's just not how the kingdom of God works. It's how a good strategic business mind works. But if God were actually that way, there would be zero resources that ever go to the Middle East or Muslim countries because they're so hard to reach people there. We should always just go where the low-hanging fruit is. We should only put money where the low-hanging fruit is and too bad for the rest of whoever, you know, except I don't think that's God's heart. And I don't know that God's heart is always about maximizing ROI, like somehow he's short on money. I really think that there's so many different moving parts that God has in mind when he is putting givers and receivers together. And even that has changed in my mind. I used to, I think, very much think like the world thinks with regards to there's people who make money and then they give back. I hate that expression. They give back. And really the current, the, the economy of the kingdom of God is not making and giving back. It is giving and receiving and receiving and giving because you can't give what you never received. And if you think you got it because and you didn't receive it, you're probably already like, you know, you're starting from the wrong starting point. So then you always feel like you're doing God a favor or you're sacrificing. And God 
what I found in my own relationship with God is that he never, ever asked me for something that he's not given to me first. And when he asks for it back, it's because he's inviting me to be involved in something that's bigger than me, that has the ability to set me free at the same time that has the ability to be a blessing to somebody else, where I get to be a conduit of God's blessing if I don't make myself too big in the middle of it. And so I'd read for a long time kind of these different, you know, saints over the ages and even guys like the Apostle Paul or any of these guys. It's this constant journey of becoming less so that God is becoming more. And I don't mean that like in a worm mentality, like we're becoming like worthless. No, we're of immense value to God, but maybe worth a little less than we're propping ourselves up to be in our own insecurity. So we start to build these other identities around ourselves, And then we use things like money as the crutch to show off our success or pretend that we're secure. So it's been a whole remaking of not just giving, doing God a favor and being a kingdom investor, but really like just being in the flow of receiving and giving. And it's interesting, you know, there's that passage in, I think it's in second Corinthians. The idea is, is that I think a lot of times what I was trained that is that when God blesses us, he's really blessing us for us. And in some cases I do think he is because he loves us as his kids. But the presumption is, is that everything we're getting is for us. And it's like, no, I don't think so. And what's been interesting since that period of time happened 15 years ago, and we capped our lifestyle at a ministry lifestyle and just give the rest away, that the abundance that God has brought, it's actually become harder to give, frankly, because of the abundance. Like the business has quadrupled over that period of time. Therefore, the income and the cash flow has quadrupled over that period of time. It's not easy. It's not easy to be a thoughtful steward. I have to end up spending a lot of time consulting with my wife and with God about giving. And I think that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. It's not even about maximizing the ROI. God's like, that's the whole point. I'm inviting you into this and giving you this stuff because I want to do this with you. I don't need you to do it for me. I want to do it with you. And I really think that is the invitation to us as his kids to be part of a kingdom enterprise. We don't have to worry about the results. We just get to participate in the process and keep our ears on and in that posture of both surrender and constant surrender, keeping going back to him and then discerning what is it that he wants to do. That's where I think that for those people that are married, I really do think that it is a real blessing that God gives us a spouse in many cases because it enhances that discernment process. It creates unity. Like I think before this whole giving thing for my wife and I, the thing we were unified over was our kids, right? Because it was the main thing we had in common. So a lot of our conversations on our date nights and stuff would be about our kids. When the whole giving thing entered in and we were trying to together discern God's direction for our giving, all of a sudden our whole conversation opened up and we had purpose in our relationship besides just, you know, raising hopefully decent kids, which arguably we'll have. We'll see. <laughs> but I think it's again, it's just another really cool blessing that God gives us in that invitation when we are operating with him as stewards and as a conduit. Well, Tim, I noticed kind of a couple patterns throughout your story that God used people and he used experiences. And in your case, he spoke directly to you on a few occasions to really guide you and to transform your life and your perspective. And it's so encouraging to hear how he's worked through you. But what happened as a result is you wanted to share that with other people. And you noticed how you said you had siloed parts of your life. And I want to dig in on how do you integrate faith with a career, especially one, I'm a financial advisor as well, where I don't always know how to 
integrate the two. And I've been participating with Kingdom Advisors that you mentioned more recently, and that's an incredibly helpful tool. And you mentioned mentorship. And I'm really wondering how that's looked in your life in this really unique kind of position of influence with clients, with people that you interact with. But when you really look to scripture, that's where the true wisdom really comes from. So when I came back from generous giving and did that six-month experiment and felt like it was almost as if God had to give me this break away from the thinking about career, how I thought about it, I felt like he actually called me back into my profession and gave me this platform. And then both at that time and over the course of the last 15 years, he's continued to, I feel like, bring me people. I've, I've literally done zero outward marketing in the last 15 years as the business has quadrupled. And I feel like what is happening is God is orchestrating relationships and then giving me the opportunity to, at times, in timely moments, be able to speak into their lives. So early on, I didn't really know. I came back with a lot of zeal because I was super excited. I was super excited and I came back to Chicago and I was also all alone. And I was like, okay, I'm talking to the other people that were on my elder board at church, my good friends, and they're like, I don't know, dude, that seems like you drink the Kool-Aid and something is wrong with you. It's a really interesting idea, but you're getting a little crazy here. And so I started sharing books with clients. Like I would just like slip them a book. I would try to bring spiritual conversation into my practice by asking people like through conversation, I'd hear something that's going on in their family or something that they're struggling with health wise or something that they're worried about. And at the end of my meetings, I would ask them if I could pray for them, whether they were Christians or not. Like only half of my clients are Christians. So I was just kind of like looking for opportunities to be able to do that. And then it was probably a year later that Generous Giving came out with these tools, these journeys of generosity, which started out, they used to call them boutique events. And they were like an overnight 24-hour thing. They've been since honed over time. And they're much better today than they ever were back then. But I mean, right out of the box, I started inviting clients to come to these journeys of generosity. That initially I would have somebody else come in and host. And then I was trained, I had to come in and facilitate. And then eventually I was trained as a facilitator. And so I've kind of tried to use the toolbox from Generous Giving, the toolbox from the National Christian Foundation, and then the toolbox that Kingdom Advisors has And there's good stuff on all three of those platforms that an advisor can use to kind of help lead their clients. But, you know, I'll tell you the same thing that I've always told, like kind of the younger financial advisors that I've mentored over the last 10 or 15 years, like you cannot take somebody where you've never been yourself. It is like the number one principle of leadership. If you do, you will be found out to be a fraud. So, Don't even try it if you're not trying to walk this walk yourself and you're not, you know, doing faith moves yourself. If you're not putting yourself in a posture where you're actually listening to God and then, you know, kind of having the gusto to go and do it yourself, you know, taking that faith risk, don't ask other people to do it. And I will say that I mentioned earlier that a lot of it has ended up in disappointment. I've got great stories, great wins but I've also got a lot of losses and a lot of disappointments and a lot of people that are just kind of like, nope, comfortable where I'm at. You know, I checked all the boxes. I have my Christian merit badge for giving. I do my tithe and that's, you know, I'm completely fine with my profit sharing plan with God. Now, one of the things I've done in recent years, just in the last five years, is I came up with a tool. Actually, I rebranded my whole practice around this So I run a Raymond James franchise for the last mm, 23 years. So we came from Merrill Lynch, went to Raymond James, where we had more freedom to be able to do stuff like this. But we held ourselves out as Raymond James until literally a year ago. And now our brand is called Fountain Wealth Management. And the reason we call it that and our process that we take clients through is called the flow. And the reason we call it Fountain Wealth Management is because of some imagery that I started using with. So I was coaching a bunch of guys that were actually on the Chicago bears 
you know, and they're professional athletes. You know, they're good at athletics. They know nothing about money. But I was hired to come in and help coach these guys around money so that their life after their professional career doesn't end up on the same stereotypical trajectory that most of these guys do, which is the money dries up, you know, the income goes away, it puts strain on their marriages, they end up getting addicted to something, you know, they go bankrupt, you know, it's like the common story that everybody's heard about for forever with professional athletes. So my job was to explain to these guys how money works. So I started using this metaphor of a champagne fountain. And because all these guys had seen the champagne fountain, you know, it's some kind of fancy thing that they were at. And so their cash flow became the champagne flowing into the top glass, which was their checking account. They're like, well, I don't know where it goes from there. You know, I just spend it. You know, I'm like, well, you know, there's really only three things you can do with that money. You can either spend it, you can save it, or you can give it away. So that's the first tier of the champagne fountain. And then for that money you're going to save, well, think a little bit longer term. What are the things that, you know, what are the things that you think that you want for your life? You know, you want to pay off your mortgage someday or put your kids through college or a vacation home, or do you want to set up a giving fund? So just by having this champagne fountain, and then what we would do is on each of those glasses on the next tier down, we'd say, okay, well, here's what the goal is. Let's quantify it. How much would it actually cost to pull that off? And how long will it take to fund that over time? And so I created basically a one-page visual financial plan for people, and it always had give, save, spend. So it would constantly drive that giving conversation. And it wouldn't overlay my values, but it would give me permission to actually tee up the conversation. Not in a weird way, not in an overly religious way, or you ought to do this. People get so weird about money and giving and stuff like that because it feels like something they're obligated to do. And I talked about it as just an opportunity. And then one of the things I would always put at the bottom is that once you've actually filled up those glasses, rather than mindlessly accumulating wealth for the rest of your life for who knows what reason except to probably ruin the next generations, everything else you can just give it away. So it created, in kind of this visual metaphor, it created a finish line. It created a net worth finish line. It created an income finish line to where everything kind of had a place and it wasn't just like, well, I got it, I spend it. And it really kind of happened just kind of on a fluke because I was just doing this with these athletes. And I started using that tool with, with just all of my clients because it made for a really easy conversation that wasn't strained or forced or weird. And then for a lot of people, what I would do on that bottom tier, so we would quantify, you know, paying off the mortgage and the college education fund and a wedding fund or what, you know, whatever it was on people's bucket list. And I always would have a spare glass at the bottom of the thing that said your opportunity fund. Well, your opportunity fund could be giving opportunities or it could be investment opportunities, right? If you want to go out and start another business or kind of have a work optional lifestyle at some point, well, you might have built that over here in another part of your financial plan, but now you have this whole other bucket that is unaccounted for that you can do whatever you want for with. And I think that's another thing that if as advisors, we can help people with clarity for where they're at today in a structure that gives them confidence for where they're going in the future they're going to be much more able to be free to take some of these faith steps, which are all incremental, right? Not everybody is going to be willing to do what I did, but I always tell my clients that even how I did it early on, which was to experiment with this, don't make a lifelong commitment, you know, experiment with stuff, give yourself the freedom to not do something for the rest of your life, you know, Just because you like, for instance, I know a lot of people that have tried to increase the percentage they give every year. Well, why do you have to feel like you're locked into that for the rest of your life? Like, is that something that God's asking you to do? Or have you just adopted another religion? Have you just overlaid a whole other set of rules that now you're really not free? You know, you might get another, you know, a merit badge on your sash or something. But the whole idea is to be in the flow with the spirit of God. In the kingdom of God is within you. 
it's planted as a mustard seed and it starts as a small seed in the garden and all of a sudden it takes over to where even the birds of the air have a place. And I would argue that in all of our lives, the birds of the air that come and take refuge are actually looking at our lives and saying, is that a tree where the kingdom of God is actually sprouted, it's actually attractive? Or is it, hmm, look at that, that guy's got a bunch more rules. Isn't that appealing? So I never want to live that way. I don't want to live that way for my sake. I don't want to live that way for my client's sake. I don't want to model that for my kids. I really want them to get a taste of that freedom. I feel like God's been bringing to me over the course of the last 15 years progressively. Tim, you mentioned kingdom advisors and you mentioned generous giving and NCF as well. And we've had Todd Harper on, who you mentioned earlier for generous giving and Eric Most talked to us about NCF as well. But I don't think we've had anybody kind of lay out kingdom advisors and what that organization is you know, aimed to do. So I was wondering if you just give us a quick overview of what kingdom advisors is and how people can get plugged in. Well, I think what Kingdom Advisors is, is different than what Kingdom Advisors was. So when Kingdom Advisors first kind of relaunched, so Larry Burkett was one of kind of the early pioneers in finance from a biblical worldview. And one of his disciples was Ron Blue, who I'd mentioned, I've had the honor of actually being to be mentored and discipled by for a period of time. So when they restarted Kingdom Advisors, which had been prior to that, it was CFPN, which was Christian Financial Planning Network, and they ran into some legal trouble with CFP. <laughs> a little too close. So it was rebranded back in 06 or 07. And the whole idea was to help financial advisors that are Christ followers to see their practice as a platform for ministry to where they do not need to feel like they have to live a siloed life where they have to be a Christian and then they have to be a good financial advisor. But you can actually bring not just your faith, bring yourself, your whole self into relationship with a client and just authentically live that out. And so the idea was, is that we would create a set of tools to help encourage and inspire Christian financial advisors to be able to live that out in their practice. And that toolbox has built over time. There was training that was put together. In recent years, there's been, that training has turned into a designation. You go through this training, you can be a certified kingdom advisor. And there is a certification process, just like there is with a CPA or with a certified financial planner. And there's different requirements to carry that designation. Now, in addition to that, in addition to providing a set of tools for a Christian financial advisor, it's also become kind of a rallying point for a whole lot of different Christian ministries and even investment companies that operate in, they're calling it the Christian financial services industry. At the heart of Kingdom Advisors, though, there is an amazing set of men and women who really do love Jesus, who are living their faith out in their practice, that see their practices every bit as legit a ministry as would be serving full-time in a church or a soup kitchen or as a missionary overseas with huge leverage. And the entree into people's lives that, frankly, many pastors would long for because of the depth of intimacy and relationship that comes along with having real conversations with people about money because their values are all tied up in that along with all kinds of weird, you know, neuroses and all kinds of other stuff are tied up in it. But it is such a amazing privileged place to be able to meet a client. That's really what kingdom advisors really at the heart is about is to empower, inspire, and to call out, advisors kind of call them out, call them into ministry. And I think they've effectively done it in many ways. Well, Tim, I just had one more question for you. I loved in your story how when you made this, when you called an experiment, you kind of set this financial finish line and that was not the end point of the story that really 
was a launching pad to all of these incredible things that have happened in and through you since then. And you've learned through further experimentation, well, am I saving too much? Am I not saving enough? And how do I steward things well? And it's an ongoing conversation with God. It's an ongoing journey. And it's just been so impressive to hear how the last 15 years are really your whole story. But what's coming up on the horizon for you? How do you see in the coming years ways that God is calling you into further challenges and stretching you? Well, it's interesting. I was able to put my kids through college. So like I was saying, the experiment probably has morphed over time. I don't think our lifestyle has changed, though our income is, the business's income has significantly increased. I would say what is changed is that I will say this comparison is a killer. So, you know, I have a lot of clients that are my age. So I'm 54 now and I manage their portfolios. And there are times when I go home and I go, man, I am a massive under accumulator of wealth. And it's because of decisions we've made over the last 15 years. Had we banked the money that we gave away we might be in a different position financially. Now, that said, I've also hit my financial finish line from a net worth standpoint. Now, a lot of that still is relatively illiquid in the business, but it is, at least least on the balance sheet, I have hit my financial finish line that I had set out to hit whatever it was 15 years ago and hadn't really given it a whole lot of thought since that period of time. So now the question is, is for where we're at now, So I no longer work because I need to work. So I really work and I work with people that God has called me to work with because I'm really, truly am serving them because this is where God wants me to be. It's a whole different freedom around work when it's that. And now what's interesting is that I've also been mentoring guys, both other advisors, both within my practice and outside of my practice. And this is the first year we're actually going to start our succession plan. And what's pretty cool about having hit your financial finish line and some of the tools that are out there for giving is this year I'm going to be for the first time transferring some of my shares of my business into my donor advised fund, which is actually where the succession plan is going to happen. So in the past, you know, I have never really outside of emergency savings, all of my investment stuff has been in my retirement account. So I've never been able to do any of this strategic giving of appreciated assets and stuff that I've always encouraged clients to do. It's always been cash. So this is the first year and I'm kind of excited about it, being able to take shares of our business, which is significantly appreciated, put them into my donor advised fund, sell them to one of my junior partners and fund my donor advised fund. So it's going to be fun to be able to do that. Again, it's going to create a problem because I don't know where that money is going to be given. So again, I'm going to have to go back and sit with God and figure it out, which I make it sound like that's such drudgery. It's hard work, but it is kind of hard work to really pay attention to what the spirit of God is doing in and around you. It's easier just to go like into autopilot mode, but it's not my money. I need to ask the owner what he wants me to do with the money. So That's what I think is going to happen. I think it's going to create really interesting relationships with my wife again. It's going to be more money than we've ever given away before over these next 12 months. I don't know where we're going to give it. I'm really trying to do a lot of giving in community with other people. Like that's what I'm really excited about. Rather than Tim and Rochelle doing this thing, I really want to come alongside with a group of people. I want to come alongside people and give them the freedom to take risk. Like find people that God has prepared for ministry that might not have the funding and come alongside them and be like, okay, man, it's time. You take that risk. I have this group of six people and we're going to fund you for the first three years. Go get them, you know, and just cut people loose to, again, just go kind of on this faith journey. You'll kind of hear that theme over and over again with me. Because I really think that's what the whole thing's about. Well, Tim, as we're getting towards the end of our episode here, we always like to leave a minute or two for our manager minute. And for those who are just joining us for the first time this episode, you know, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to do just that. 
So, Tim, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel, or build God's kingdom? Well, I think there's plenty of opportunity out there. I think what most people don't have is the additional margin. So I guess the challenge that I would put out there to you, me, and anyone who's listening is find a way to create a little bit of extra margin. And actually, it doesn't have to be a lot. And then get into a listening posture. So that one of the best experiments I've ever had is a guy handed me a hundred bucks and he said, I want you to listen to God and give it to whoever you want to give it to. And I had that hundred bucks sitting in the little center council of my car. And every time I got into my car, I was like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And it wasn't about the hundred bucks or who was even going to get it. It constantly put me in that position where I was like, I always had my eyes open and my ears on to what God might be prompting me to do. That, I think, is a super practical thing that anybody listening could do. And it doesn't matter if it's 10 bucks, 100 bucks, or a million bucks. It's the same exact principle. Create a little bit of capacity and then put your spiritual ears on. Put yourself in a position to hear. Obey the prompt and see if God doesn't show you some really cool stuff. And that certainly has played out in your life. Well, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. This has been an incredible conversation. I know Cody would say the same and that we are blessed to have you and just to hear all God has done through your life. Really good being with you guys. I love what you're doing. Keep it up. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting up Financial Finish Line, the Finish Line Movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 39. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.